Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. to be back in this room and back in this city and um, with so many of you. Um, thank you again uh, to Peter and to Bodil for having me here um, and all the work that goes into bringing me here. Um, this year, uh, my trip to Copenhagen um, is with my family and so we've been here for almost a month now. Uh, so uh, I've had the full-time job of being in almost every park in this neighborhood <laughs> for at least four hours a day. And uh, so I've gotten to know many of the kids in the city, I think. <laughs> yeah. And I also just want to uh, acknowledge uh, many of you who uh, I just spent some time with in France on silent retreat. Um, and to remind you, uh, for those of you who were on a retreat, that this practice that we do even when we drop in here tonight, briefly, is exactly the same practice. Uh, we meet the same habits, same targets, same resistance, um, same reactivity. Uh, so, so I hope that uh, you can feel this as a continuation of the same thing that uh, we've been doing. He came on silent retreat with us, <laughs> and uh, it was really inspiring. And uh, instead of his parents bringing a stroller, they found on the property a wheelbarrow. So he got pushed around in a wheelbarrow, and he was silent for a week. Uh, except in the morning, every morning after our first period of meditation, we would chant the Heart Sutra. And at the end of the Heart Sutra, there's a bell. And so after the bell rang, then he would go, <laughs> It's really, really beautiful. So I'm going to give a talk tonight on an old story from the Zen tradition. Um, here's the story. Mr. Peng and his daughter were selling bamboo baskets. Coming down off a bridge with his arms full, Mr. Pang stumbled and fell. When his grown-up daughter saw that he fell, 
She ran over and threw herself to the ground beside him to help him. What are you doing? cried Mr. Pang. I saw you fall, so I'm helping, she said. It's a good thing no one was looking, said Mr. Pang. So that's it. <laughs> uh, tonight I want to talk about uh, the practice of being a bodhisattva. If you're not familiar with this term, a bodhisattva, maybe a little bit of history is required. After the Buddha died, um, so this is about 300 BC, after he died, some people got together, and this was called the First Council, and monks got together and set down uh, the memory of the Buddha's important teachings, but particularly they met around ethics, like how to handle money and other topics like this. And when they met, they set down really important rules for monastics. But of course, whenever a council meets, or a club meets, some people are excluded. And a century goes by, and a second council is created. And in that second council, the people who were left out, they all get together. And they take a lot of the teachings that were codified in the first council, and they rework them. And they reworked them based on the kinds of people who were at that meeting. So it wasn't just uh, male monastics, there were also women there. And there were householders there. And there were merchants there. So there were all kinds of people there, and there were family people there. So maybe it's a little bit like this group here, you know? It's not just about uh, uh, us studying together the same texts and the same teachings monastics were doing in the past, but how do these practices that obviously have value come to life in the busyness of our mostly urban, uh, contemporary, uh, industrial, information age existence. Does this make sense a little bit? Yeah. So anyways, in that council, one of the uh, big changes that uh, came about in the teachings was a shift from this idea of practicing to become an arhat or practicing to become an awakened Buddha. And rather than practicing to become an awakened, enlightened Buddha, they thought it might be more important to practice in order to work with other beings. It's a really interesting point. And they replaced this idea of arhat, somebody who's practicing to become, you know the image we have of like, usually the solo man sitting under a tree in his early 30s, getting enlightened okay? in Burma or whatever. So the idea was to replace this with an idea of someone who is a bodhisattva. A bodhi means awakened and sattva means being. And my translation of bodhisattva is not just kind of an, an awakened being, but a being who is awakening other beings. And a being who is also awakened by other beings. You see. So the reason why I'm telling you the story tonight of Mr. Pang is because I want to unpack 
this spirit of the bodhisattva, somebody whose life is dedicated to not just their own individual awakening, but to the wake awakening to the recognition of the needs, the pain, the suffering of other beings. Because I think we all know that that's when our practice really gets going. That we can't get woken up all alone. So, you want to hear the story again? <laughs> Mr. Pang and his daughter were selling bamboo baskets and coming down off a bridge with his arms full. You picture him full of all these baskets. He fell. And when his grown-up daughter, his eldest daughter, saw this, she ran over and threw herself to the ground. What are you doing? cried Mr. Pang. I saw you fall, so I'm helping. And then Mr. Pang says, well, it's a good thing no one was looking. But actually, I think that if you were short on time and you couldn't handle, because people can't read anymore, and you couldn't handle the length of this story, <laughs> you could just sum it up. Like if you had to tattoo it or whatever, then you would just sum it up as, I saw you fall, and so I'm helping. Imagine falling down and having someone throw themselves down to exactly the same place where you're at. Imagine falling down in your life and somebody comes around who knows how to meet you in that place. Or imagine feeling in your life like you're in a hole and somebody throws down a rope not for you to climb out, but they throw down a rope so that they can climb down into the hole with you and meet you there. So to me, this koan or this story, this Zen story, is about uh, falling down and not setting yourself up against yourself. Most of the time when we fall down, most of the time when we're stressed, most of the time when we get bad news, we turn ourselves against ourselves or against the story we had about our lives. Also, the thing that's really interesting about this story is he receives his daughter's help. Sometimes we organize our posture so that we advertise to the world that we don't need any help. And if our body has the posture of not needing any help, nobody around us will have any cues that they can step forward to help. And most of this is all quite unconscious. We give people cues in how we hold ourselves and how we communicate that uh, we don't need any help. And then, uh, over time, people internalize those cues, don't think about them anymore. It's all under language, you know. And uh, 
they don't think of us as being in a position where we need any support. And then this goes against our spiritual practice. Because part of our spiritual practice is sharing, is giving and receiving. So if you set your posture up so that you don't ever need anyone to give you anything, then you won't learn how to receive. That was the Dalai Lama calling me. <laughs> Must be about 6.15. The great thing about uh, receiving something in the present moment or having uh, your skin open to another person is um, it lets you understand something new about yourself and understand something new about the world. Not your regular view of the world that you're reinforcing all day, but it sets you up to, uh, to feel something new about the way you're in the world. And when someone falls down with you, it changes your heart in relationship to that person, and it changes your heart in relationship to yourself. Just think as I'm talking about someone who's fallen down with you. Not necessarily that you've fallen together. That happened to me once. When I was younger in high school, I had a girlfriend, and um, she also had a bike. So we, a speed bike, like not a motorcycle bike. And uh, so we used to ride a lot holding hands. And then one day we crashed into each other. And both all bleeding and everything, but it was like so romantic. You know? <laughs> you probably also hear in this story that, um, and this is why this is a Zen story, is that this is a story of somebody who responds without flinching, without hesitating, and without thinking. Father falls, daughter shows up. She doesn't just show up. She meets him, like, right there at the bottom of the fall. Your father is unwell, you show up. Your mother is unwell, you show up. I think about this having a kid, you know, because uh, I've had times when my, my kids were really sick. And if your kid ever throws up, this strange thing happens in your body where while your kid is just starting to throw up, your hands go out to catch the throw up. Like it's the mo when you think about how disgusting it is. You know? Yeah, like if Klaus started throwing up, I don't think that I would have the same <laughs> reaction, you know. We're almost there, though, actually. A couple more years. So. <laughs> but what it means is to be so involved in a life of care, to be a caretaker, to be so involved in a life of care that you don't need a badge for it. You don't need a trophy, and you don't need anyone to see it. It's good nobody saw it. Don't let it get to your head. 
this Peng family, which is uh, Layman uh, Peng, his wife and their daughter Ling Zhao, uh, there was also a son whose name in the history records we don't know, um, <clears throat> have been the embodiment of awakened life in householder China for many, many centuries. The quality of their life, and you can feel it in this story, I think, resonates for lots of us. First of all, they're householders. But second, it's good to know that their business went really well. And just when it was doing great, they started giving all their money away. And once they had given all their money away, all they had left was their house. And they were so interested in having people practice with them that they gave their house away and turned it into a temple. And for many years, that was a very important pilgrimage site for people who were making pilgrimage in China. And I think we can do that here in Copenhagen. Um, Rege and Karsten have a houseboat. It's falling apart. <laughs> it's also for sale. So <laughs> we could just buy it, fix it up, and have it as a place to practice until it sinks. I guess I shouldn't advertise that it needs work because it's for sale. <laughs> it's actually in great condition. The point is, is that this family, their primary commitment was to each other and to practice. So that the core value of the family was to practice together, to be inseparable, to be tight. Not tight in a way like codependent, but tight where the focus was practice. And remember what bodhisattva practice is to serve beings. The story is somewhat tragic because um, the father, son, and daughter all die within a few weeks of each other. The mom is the only one left. <clears throat> um, which I won't get into today. I'll save that story for later. And then it ends with this wonderful and very strange line. Like, it's good no one was looking. It sort of means, thanks for not drawing unwanted attention. So on one hand, the dad's kind of embarrassed, and it's okay. And like, what's that like for you? When you fall down, do you notice how sometimes you hide your embarrassment that you've fallen down? Or you have a little shame that you've fallen down in whatever way you've fallen? So he's fallen down and he's embarrassed and that's part of his practice is to be in embarrassment samadhi. One with embarrassment. And not having like that other self-conscious voice going, why are you so embarrassed? Or I'm so embarrassed. I can't believe I'm so embarrassed. But he's just embarrassed. This happens a lot in hospitals, you know. Someone's going in for surgery, maybe, or an ultrasound, and they have to take off all their clothes and put one of those gowns on. Is anyone here? Do you guys have those gowns in Denmark? 
And these gowns are really embarrassing because they don't come with instructions, you know, like how to tie them up and everything. And you realize like a lot of air comes in the back, <laughs> you know? And it happens a lot in hospitals and doctor's offices where someone puts one of these gowns on and doesn't get it quite right. And they walk down into the hall and like, you can see everything, you know, almost everything, you know. And then the person realizes this, you know, and it's very embarrassing. This happened actually yesterday. Uh, I was at the park and a mom took like, I don't know how many kids she had, but lots of kids. And she took them all into the bathroom. And when she came out, she'd accidentally tucked her skirt into her underwear. It's kind of the same problem. You know? And then you don't know what to say. Do you go up and say, hi, I'm a foreigner, and I notice that you're... <laughs> so being embarrassed is also part of our practice. I had this last week, you know, um, Peter and I, uh, the other day, we went to the gym together. And uh, so we did some like exercises and felt really strong. And then at the end, Peter always, he always does this when we go to the gym. He did this last year too. We're just about to end and then he says, let's do pull-ups. <laughs> Which is, you never say that to a tall person, you know. And I said, Peter, I can only do like three pull-ups, you know. And they said, it's okay, I'll hold your feet. And I said, Peter, I have way too much pride <laughs> to let you hold my feet in the gym. <laughs> Another detail about this story that you might uh, not know about, aside from the fact that there aren't that many wonderful stories with women in them, in this tradition, is that um, Layman Peng's daughter, Ling Zhao, was a Zen master in her own right. And that's important detail in the story. She was considered a teacher at that time. <clears throat> and that layman Pong was a student of a great master that many of you might be familiar with because I tell his stories all the time, Master Ma. Um, if you were on silent retreat, you heard some of his stories. Master Ma's main way of teaching was teaching Zen koans, which are these very, very short uh, questions that a student would get. But he changed how Zen koans were taught. Because before Master Ma, Zen koans were given to a student, they would meditate on this question. So for example, the teacher would give you a question if we use this story, like, um, I saw you fall. So I helped. And you would say, okay, okay. <laughs> and the teacher would say, I want you to like drop that into your meditation practice and really work with that. Until the student would have a kind of breakthrough. And this was a really traditional way of meditation practice. Master Ma changed the way koans were taught. And what he did was he, he worked with the student so that the process of awakening always happened within relationship. This is a very important move. In other words, the, the, the student never woke up by themselves in this like epiphany, that the epiphany happened through the process of relationship. 
He also thought, this is Master Ma, that practices for monastics and practices for non-monastics were exactly the same and had the same depth. And both monastics and non-monastics had the same capacity for the same kind of awakening. So back to the Pong family. Uh, we don't know, they were probably middle or upper class. The daughter, Ling Zhao, her name means a spirit shining. And her and her dad, they always worked together side by side. They were inseparable. They made baskets, but they also handcrafted utensils. One day, they were working together. Maybe it was a long day, and maybe they were coming back downhill from the market, and he fell, and she threw herself to the ground. I saw you fall, so I'm helping. Just let that in. I saw you fall. To me, this story is a reminder that um, there's no such thing as a helper and somebody who's being helped. If you work in a hospital and you try to help people, or if you work in a medical clinic and you think of yourself as helping people, there's probably not a lot of help going on. And there's probably a lot of uh, power differential, differential. And there's going to be some burnout. And most people in the helping professions, they don't burn out because of how many hours they work. They burn out because of the conceptual framework in how they're thinking about their work. Always trying to help people means that you're looking at people as if they all need help. Trying to fix people means that people are broken and need help. So instead, we think about practice as a practice of intimacy, which is just allowing yourself to fall in the hole. If you were on retreat, you know that the way I was teaching uh, meditation technique on retreat was to call this non-dual activity. And what I mean by that is uh, compassion. Compassion is non-dual activity. What I mean by that is you're wholehearted in your activity. Your whole heart is in your activity. There's nobody helping and there's nobody being helped. There's just wholehearted activity. I saw you fall, I'm helping. There's no like super ego. There's no ego that's on top of that thinking, I hope someone sees how I've helped them. I hope I get a reward for this somehow. Or for the danger for people like us is, I'm a bodhisattva. 
This must be what Michael was talking about. I'm going to write him and tell him about this person <laughs> that I served. <laughs> when your whole heart is in an activity, your child's throwing up and you reach over right there. There's, there's no helper and there's no one you're helping. If you're so identified with your personality or if you can't forgive or if you have a lot of resentment then when the people close to you are ill and you go to serve them it's going to be all mixed up some good intention but a lot of old stuff that you might not have the skills of working with because you've been so addicted to your resentment and your frustration. So let's imagine, if we can, that the base of everything is intimacy. Let's imagine this. That we make all kinds of abstractions and defensive moves to get out of the inherent deep, grounded, but flowing intimacy that's always happening in each moment. I do. And over time, we forget about that deep connection there that we just cover up. My understanding of yoga as a practice <clears throat> is that in every situation what we want to do as best we can is to liberate the intimacy that's already there in the situation. You see? So it's not to use the situation to get something to happen but it's to liberate the intimacy that's already there. It's there already. What does the person who's having trouble want? They just want your attention, your connection, your availability. What do they want? We say this sometimes about our teenagers, you know. What the hell do they want? I don't understand, you know. So what I'm suggesting here is that to become intimate is a cinnamon. Did I say cinnamon? <laughs> That's what I mean. To become intimate is a synonym for enlightenment. And that the way that I'll be teaching over the next few days is to use those two terms interchangeably. An enlightening being is one who's open to the intimacy of this moment and opening to the intimacy of each moment is enlightening, awakening. So that intimacy is not something you're trying to pull out of a situation, but something that's already there in every situation in a different way. 
in a different configuration. And our job is to find that out, bring it out, let it in, and it's never what you think it should look like. So if right now you have an idea of what that means, that's not it. Because right now you're like, oh yeah, I totally know like how my whole life is going to be. No. So the first way of recovering this intimacy is by not abandoning the situation you're in. And you don't abandon the situation by not fleeing from yourself. And I call this uh, not separating from yourself. Usually when we encounter someone who's having trouble or we're having trouble, we separate from ourselves. We flee from ourselves. We can't stay in our experience. We need to get out of our experience somehow. And how do we do that? Usually with ideas, right? You're encountering something that's other, and so many ideas constellate around that. Intimacy is about being vulnerable in the situation you're in, as the situation's changing, calling out what you see, calling out your mistakes, calling out what you see, checking on your mistakes, communicating that, checking on that, and allowing that process to unfold, even though, as we all know, it's kind of like scary. Because we'd rather have an identity that's a little more crisp, <laughs> you know. So the work of a bodhisattva is also that when you fall to the ground, you meet yourself there and you don't abandon yourself. You don't flee from yourself. You don't separate from yourself. When Ling Zhao threw herself to the ground, it's not just profound because she didn't hesitate. It's also profound because it's funny. It's funny. Do you get the joke? No. Okay. To me, I thought it was funny. I think it could be a comic, you know. I'd like to tell you a story about a woman named Nadia. This past summer, Nadia was forced to flee the country she was born in, Iraq, when she was four months pregnant. She sought safety across the border from Iraq in Syria. Can you imagine how desperate somebody has to be to think that crossing into Syria this summer would be the lesser of two evils? In Nadia's case, she was driven to Syria by witnessing the sight of a car 
full of fellow Yazidi girls, attacked, shot, and then burned to death. Girls just like her. And she feared that this was the same fate that awaited herself and her family. So after a desperate time in Syria, she got on a leaking, dangerous, unseaworthy boat when she was nine months pregnant. to go to Greece. Her child died inside her belly for malnutrition and stress. And then when she arrived at the border in Greece, they gave her an immediate cesarean section within a couple of hours. She says, they didn't even let me see my baby. They just took him away and buried him in a mass grave with other babies. I cried and cried for days. I cannot even bear visiting that grave. The current refugee crisis is probably the gravest humanitarian crisis that we've witnessed in our lifetime. And the refugee crisis is very controversial because in these turbulent times calls to offer protection to refugees are consistently met with opposition. But look at the media's portrayal of refugees. The objectification the dehumanization, the assumption that we even know who these people are, that the readers even know who these individuals are. To me, this is history repeating itself, because this is the same dynamic that sent my own ancestors uh, leaving Poland and moving to Canada. If you have a strong bias towards another country, you probably don't understand that culture. We live such privileged lives. I've been in Copenhagen for just one month. There's so much privilege here. We have to accept a realistic share of refugees that's commensurate with the privilege and the wealth of this country. Why? Not just because of abstract humanitarian ideas, but also this lifestyle has partly created climate change. And climate change and the creation of drought in the countries that many of the refugees come from is often called nowadays climate debt. Countries like this survive on an economy that extracts so much from the earth and pollutes so much, as eco as we think we are. And as much as we think we're in the information age, 
all of our devices are all built in the industrial age. And to not see that relationship between climate change, an absence of water, civil war, drought, drone attacks, refugees, our lifestyle, is to miss the larger intimacy and interconnection of human life and ecological life. To not see the relationship between an extractivist economy, the need for fossil fuels, and the refugee crisis is also to not understand karma. So that's why we need a more human dimension every time we have fantasies of what a refugee crisis means. So I don't want to tell stories like Nadia's stories to exploit Nadia's story, but rather to remind all of us that these are human beings who have families like us and fears like us and want connection like us and want drinking water like us and want safety like us and don't want their kids to be in danger. The point of being a bodhisattva is to remind yourself of your values and to stick to those values. Sometimes in your life, your circle needs to be really, really small. Your work is just about taking care of your sore throat or your headache or paying more attention to your digestion. Sometimes your circle is a little bit bigger, like maybe you need to have more social interaction or less, for me it's always less social interaction. Or your circle of care needs to be a little bigger. Maybe you need to pay more attention to the needs of the people that are in your community and in your family. And maybe you've really been obsessed with yourself for the last little while and you've forgotten what other people around you need. Or maybe you've given them cues that you're not interested in what they need. Or maybe they don't know how to communicate their needs and you have to help them a little. And that's how we catch people when they're falling. We don't objectify them. We don't dehumanize them. We don't make them into an other. We don't other them. I've had to do this a lot in my own life in recent years because I used to be much more like a get on the street, demonstrate, activist kind of a young man, you know. And now I feel partly because of situations in my own life, but partly because of uh, the work that I do. I feel like now when I look at people, I'm more aware of mental health issues than I ever have been. So I feel like I'm a less maybe obsessed with certain kinds of activism and interested in kind of more invisible activism. And I think at different phases in our life, we all go through different phases of how we want to be engaged. Maybe it's through your career, or maybe sometimes it's not through your career. 
So, I'd like to offer you some practices that you can take home so that it feels like you leave tonight uh, with something that you can actually do. So number one, we need a practice that gathers our attention and stabilizes it. When you sit still, you want your breathing and your attention to harmonize so you can sustain your attention in the present moment. A bee approaches a flower, it circles around the flower, and then eventually it really stays close to the core of the flower. We need to be able to do this with our attention and our body, to hang in there, to know what it's like to be patient and sustain our attention on something, especially in an era where our attention is so fragmented. The problem with having really fragmented attention is you start believing in bullshit. I don't know how to say it better than that. So that you can learn how to completely lock on in the moment. Secondly, when you can sustain your attention, the second component, I think, of bodhisattva practice, I made this all up today, by the way, <laughs> is being able to um, be attuned to what's actually going on. So once you can sustain your attention, tune in to what's going on in the moment. Notice what's going on in your own mind and in your own body, and sense that into the experience of your child the experience of your friend, the experience of your patient, the experience of the, the student in your classroom. You settle your own mind and body, and then you can be aware of what's happening in other minds and bodies. Have you noticed that? Yeah. When you're calm, you're much more attuned to what's going on for other people. Not that we get it right all the time. We don't. But attunement is related, I think, to meditation practice. Because in meditation practice, you're constantly seeing how your mind creates expectations. That's all you do when you meditate. You're like, oh, expectation, come back to your breathing. <laughs> so how do you tune in? Just don't expect anything. So, gather your attention, tune in, and don't expect anything. As I'm speaking, can you imagine this in different situations, maybe? Number three, third stage. As the encounter starts to unfold, um, consider what's up. So this is stage three. Consider what's up. What do I mean by that? What are you sensing? What are you seeing? What are you feeling? What are you thinking? What are you noticing? And what will serve right now? What would serve best right now? So 
the way I would say this around work is like draw on your expertise and your knowledge and your experience and be open to seeing things in a fresh way at the same time. Or I could sum that up by saying, just don't have quick conclusions. Quick conclusions are a sign of impatience. So, attunement, right? Like, gather your attention, tune in, and then don't have quick conclusions. Stay interested. This is so hard for me. I love concluding. Oh yeah, that's what that is. Oh, the refugees. Yep. Mm-hmm. From, from the south. I'd never get on a boat like that. Like all these crazy, you know. We've worked so hard for our economy to be this way. Yeah, really. What were the industries that created this economy? Number four. Don't you love stages? This is like the best part of the talk. You're like, oh good, I can actually do something with it. (laughs) This is the last part. Compassionate action. Do something. And I'm going to suggest this is where bodhisattva teachings differ, I think, than most other spiritual teachings from India and Asia of that era. Which is, once you're tuned in, once you consider the situation, do something. Take compassionate, creative action. And you know what? It's never going to be the perfect action. Doesn't matter, you do something. When people ask me, what lineage are you? I could say superficial stuff. This Zen lineage and this Vipassana lineage and this yoga lineage or whatever. But I hope that for those of you who are seriously practicing, that you will consider your lineage just a bodhisattva lineage. A bodhisattva lineage. Someone once asked Shinru Suzuki, what do you teach? And he said, what I teach is more fundamental than Zen. But for convenience, I call myself a Zen teacher. (laughs) Isn't that nice? What we're doing here is more fundamental than spiritual practice. But for convenience, we'll just say we're doing a spiritual practice, even though none of us really know what that means. It's true, right? Nobody really knows what that means. But for convenience, we just say, oh, I'm, doing a, I'm on a path, you know. But like in your heart, you're like, I have no idea what the path is. <laughs> like I know there's aid of something. <laughs> It's said that when someone sets in their heart the intention to do something wholesome, to do something for the good, a bodhisattva is born. When you have the intention to do something for the good, 
a bodhisattva is born. When you make a vow to serve others, when you make that a vow, I'm going to include others. Um, it's an important thing. But usually we don't understand it. So I always say to students, because we chant the bodhisattva vows sometimes, I always say to them, the most important thing is you make a vow and then you spend the rest of your life trying to figure out what it is and what it means. So you make a vow. Okay, I am going to serve all sentient beings. The delusions I have in my mind are inexhaustible, so I'm going to learn how to work with them. Actually being awake all the time seems unattainable, so I'm going to learn how to embody that. And I'm going to spend the rest of my life trying to figure out how to do that. Because karma affects everything. Everything you do has an echo. So making a vow to live the bodhisattva life is saying, I choose to shape my life in this particular way. This is how I want to shape my life. And if you spend too much time thinking about how to be a bodhisattva, you've totally missed the point. If you're like, how can I be a bodhisattva today? You know, then you're probably not actually in your experience. There are people like this, I'll tell you, I'll, I can tell you about them. I will actually tomorrow. So, uh, Shanti Deva has a commentary on uh, the bodhisattva's way of life and I'm going to almost end with this. Here's what Shanti Deva says uh, May I be a protector to those without protection? I kind of feel like all the media, especially newspapers, they, they should post this on the front page after the way the conversations around. Not just the conversations around the refugee crisis have turned out, but like what stories they've chosen <coughs> to talk about and what aspects they've chosen to talk about. Um, instead, this is what should be on the front cover. So if anyone here like has the resources to take out a full page ad, <laughs> um, let's do it tomorrow. May I be a protector to those without protection, a leader for those who journey, a boat, a bridge, a passage for those desiring a further shore. May the pain of every living creature be cleared away, and my, may I be a doctor and the medicine and a nurse for all the sick beings in the world until every single one is healed. For all sick beings in the world, until every single one is healed. Mr. Peng and his daughter were selling bamboo baskets. Coming down off a bridge with his arms full, 
Mr. Peng stumbled and he fell. When his eldest daughter saw this, she ran up and threw herself to the ground beside him. What are you doing? I saw you fall, so I'm helping. When we fall down, we need the ground in order to get back up again. When someone falls, we don't always need to help. Sometimes we just need to get on the ground with them, get in the mix. How presumptuous to think you know what people new to your country might need without asking. So our practice is just to make ourselves available and balance what we know and what we need with an awareness of the privilege that we have so that we can offer that to other people. So, it's okay to fall. It's okay to make mistakes. When you think about it, we're all falling through space. <laughs> all falling down. But the best thing about falling is you then uh, fall into the trust or the faith or the confidence that no matter what you fall into, uh, love and renewal are always waiting for you. Thank you for listening to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. If you like this podcast, you can support it by subscribing on iTunes or SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rate us and leave a comment. Your feedback helps to distinguish us from the pack. You can also support us by word of mouth. Tell a friend or send a tweet. Finally, please consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Michael Stone. Even a couple of dollars a month will help us reach our goals. To learn about Michael's retreats and his online courses, go to michaelstoneteaching.com. Once again, that's michaelstoneteaching.com. With your support, we'll continue to build a community library about mindfulness and mental health that can be shared with the world. Thank you for supporting this community without walls.